You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie, and because she is traveling this week, Chris was sadly not able to be with me this episode, but I have a fabulous co-host, Sally. Hi, Sally. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for being here. Rather last minute. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm thrilled to be asked. Thank you. It's a real honor. I mean it. Aw. In this episode, we are discussing episode 508 of Orphan Black, Guillotines Decide. While we will talk about anything that happened in that episode, there shouldn't be any spoilers for future episodes. Well, I guess let's start with our our general impressions of this episode. And uh, so you go first. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, why do I have to go first? Okay, well, this episode, I just like the last, I think, three episodes of Orphan Black, I have just been sort of on the edge of my seat as the action has been picking up, um, you know, from sort of character studies and you know, getting ready to go to just like, what is happening? So many things are happening, like, you know, really building tension. I liked it. There was rising action. I mean, the ending, we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But it just really was um, a really like, it had me, I think, riveted and enraptured. I thought it was great. You know, I feel like this is the the first Orphan Black episode where I'm going to say very explicitly afterwards, I don't know that this episode really worked for me. I found the the combining of the plot with Felix and his art opening with all the stuff going on with Mrs. S, I, I don't know that it quite gelled for me. And I have some really complicated feelings about a couple of the, the plot twists in this episode, which some of which maybe I need to see what happens. And maybe then I'll have a clearer sense of how I feel about it. But when the credits rolled on this one, I just thought, oh, I don't think that worked for me, which is not something that happens very often on Orphan Black. And I could feel differently when I go back and rewatch. But right now, I just kind of feel uneasy about the whole thing. But we'll see. So I guess let's start by talking about Mrs. S. I feel like this this was really Mrs. S's shining moment of the season and perhaps even the series. Oh yeah. It was a total, I think culmination of how she has pretty well dedicated, you know, the, a large portion of her life ever since Sarah and Felix came into her life, you know, towards being their mom. And then she was brought into sort of realizing about the clone conspiracy protecting them. And I feel like this was the episode it really dawned on me how much she has taken over the investigation of the clone conspiracy this season and really has let Sarah take a back seat. While Sarah's been a little bit involved, I I think I realized finally in this episode that it's really been Mrs. S who's been driving stuff this season. Oh yeah, for sure. And um, you know, that it really kind of when Adele was talking to Sarah when they were getting the food ready to bring over to Felix's, And uh, before she spilled the beans, Adele did, she also said, Delphine just did whatever Mrs. S told her to do. So Mrs. S has really been in charge. There were a lot of shots of Sarah calling her mom, kissing her on the cheek. And, um, you know, we had some of that like maternal interaction in the last episode too, between the two of them. And I think that this was really showing Mrs. S being the mom in whatever sense that is. But I guess in this sense, it was, you know, I will handle this thing for my children. 
I definitely get that sense. And I, I knew Mrs. S was going to be up to something in this episode just from that final shot of her in the teaser. That's where Sarah kisses her on the cheek and, you know, she leaves the kitchen and S just has this look on her face. And I was just, I knew she was going to be up to something. And in hindsight, well, I think probably even in the moment, I was thinking, Mrs. S, you better not be doing this alone. But she did. And now I'm kind of mad at her because what if she had been more forthcoming? Maybe she would have had some backup. But but yeah, I do think it became clear to me in this episode that S has been doing this, I think, as an act of love to Sarah. She's, well, she's tried to help Sarah over the, you know, the seasons, clearly. And she's always been protective of especially Kira. This kind of felt like Mrs. S being the mother hen and taking on this tough thing. She's like, I'm going to fix this for my daughter. I'm going to fix this for my children. Mm -hmm. And when you think back to the first season of Orphan Black, where Sarah, you know, was believed to be dead and Mrs. S was having Kira live with her. And then, you know, Sarah came back and Mrs. S was like none too friendly to her. She was kind of I think in some ways protecting Kira from Sarah, um, that's really just kind of come full circle now. She's protecting all of them. And I think what also occurred to me in this episode that Mrs. S, at least she, she got what she wanted, right? We see in this episode that she has found all this evidence that can be really damning to Dyad and to Neolution. But she has definitely made some choices along the way that I don't think Sarah would have. You're right. I mean... The choices that she made for sure, like in specific, I think you had a couple ideas about them, right? Yeah, I was thinking in particular when they go and confront Cody, Dr. Cody in the nursing home earlier in the season, you know, Sarah was very much like, heck with this woman. She's terrible. She's a psychopath, a genocidal psychopath. I do not want to have anything to do with her. But S was willing to talk with her and even maybe liberate her from the nursing home because I think that was the plan before they got caught. But I don't, mm -hmm. and I don't think Sarah would have done that. I, I don't even know that Sarah would have gone to talk to Dr. Cody. Yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, Mrs. S, from what we've learned about her past, like, I don't know if I would exactly call it black ops or what, but I mean, she had definitely crossed a lot of lines and, um, you know, was clearly willing to do so when the stakes were high enough. Right, because and then we see here in this episode when they finally revealed what her her secret information was into Neolution, and it was Ferdinand. I, I'm how did you feel about that revelation that he was her her secret source? <laughs> well, I was surprised. I mean, I've been listening to your guys' podcast every week, and I was really like on board with you and Chris, hoping that <laughs> <laughs> Marion Bowles uh, closure. <laughs> yes, hoping that it would be Marion Bowles or. Maybe just, I guess, somebody even more unexpected. Like, I always got the impression that Ferdinand was sort of hired muscle and he was a cleaner, you know, but I guess being close to Rachel, he probably had access to a lot of information, you know, but like, I, I was surprised that it was him. And, you know, he's like, awful. And he's a bad person. I think I was surprised it was Ferdinand because it was kind of unsurprising, if that makes any mm -hmm. sense. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, it's just him? Well, darn, I could have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> because especially when it came to Dr. Cody, because he was the one shown stopping the car that had Dr. Cody and Mark in it at the end of season three. And that's how we knew, like, oh, there goes Dr. Cody. So it would make sense that he would know where 
Dr. Cody was stashed. And I think maybe we considered it, but then thought, but that just seems too obvious. But I guess they decided to go the obvious route. Well, it is a little late in this season and the series to introduce a new character, but we would really care if that was the, the deep throat. I know, but Marion Bowles. <laughs> oh, she would have been great. She would have been great. <laughs> I was su- surprised how unsurprising the fact that it was Ferdinand. And I'm glad they at least had Delphine chirp up and be like, you know, I'm sickened by the fact that we are making deals with with MK's killer, because that was p- disappointing to me, too. I, I think that's maybe one of the reasons I dismissed it might be Ferdinand was because he did that awful thing at the beginning of the season. And I just thought, oh, why would they even talk to him anymore? Oh, right. Exactly. But this goes back to, I think, um, Mrs. S's really pragmatic approach to getting done what she wants and needs to get done. You know, he's distasteful and He's done terrible things that are unforgivable, but, you know, he was, I guess, someone who could be the key to getting the things that she was looking for. And she operates in sometimes anyway, like questionable moral gray areas. And uh, the reason that it's such a great example, I guess, of, um, you know, that pragmatism is because it is so horrendous Mm. or he's so horrendous. And I think clearly from what we see of Sarah's reaction she would not have even considered talking to Ferdinand again. Yeah, no doubt. And that's likely why Mrs. S and Delphine have been so secretive is because they could see his usefulness, but knew Sarah and probably the other clones would not be on board with them talking to him. Mm-hmm. Though it does seem that Mrs. S, while she was working with Ferdinand, she planned for him to not end up very well. It feels like her her goal was for him not to ride off with Rachel into the sunset, ultimately. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it, I feel like she intended to sacrifice him in the plot to free the clones. Oh, definitely. And even if there hadn't been, you know, I don't know if she had planned every move out to the T. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. Um, maybe going to the board with the blackmail information was a decision along the way, or maybe it was always the plan. But I'll tell you what, like, I think she would have made sure, and she did, you know, make sure that he died either way. Because even though this is not the first time we've seen them work together, I I think she recognizes him as a danger, even though she has seen him as a useful ally at times. Yeah, the last time they, you know, were sort of together, I don't know if they were working together at the end of it, he ended up with a corkscrew through his hand. Yep. (laughs) Yes, that's a good point. There is no love lost between the two of them, huh? (laughs) (laughs) But it occurred to me after the the episode ended and and we see what happened what goes down between the two of them we see that montage of Mrs. S getting ready right before she goes to meet Rachel and then she goes to Felix's art opening and as she's like loading guns and arranging the flowers she's also writing a letter and crying and I don't think we ever mm-hmm. get back to the content of that letter and the fact that she was writing the letter I think that suggests to me she thought she might not make it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, whenever somebody's writing a letter and crying, it means they're either about to abscond and leave or, you know, they do think maybe they're not going to make it, especially on TV. So, you know, I definitely had that foreboding feeling when I was watching her write that letter, too. And I just I just don't know how to feel. Well, no, I think I do know how I feel about this ending because it feels it feels pretty final to me. It feels like Mrs. S was shot and she died. How, I don't know. How do you feel about it? Well, 
she was shot in, I think Ferdinand said the left ventricle and a shot, you know, right through the heart is a fast way to die. And there's, even if you maybe have immediate emergency medical attention, then, you know, that's kind of hard to come back from, I think. And she did get sort of, you know, what I think of as what feels like a final death scene on TV where, you know, she uh, looked at the picture in her hand. She said chickens. And then, you know, she sort of her eyes went a little bit vacant. And I think that that was meant to indicate that um, she had passed away. You know, I think there's a tiny sliver of hope we can cling to that maybe that's not what happened. The only thing that gives me a little bit of hope is they did include that scene where through the clone connection, which we've seen before, Sarah gets a very foreboding sense about Mrs. S. And maybe Sarah will get in, get there in time to try to help her. But like you said, if if she really was shot through the heart, it's very unlikely that she'll be able to survive that. And even if Sarah herself did get there, Sarah probably has some basic first aid skills, but you know, Mrs. S is going to need a lot more than just, you know, put pressure on the wound. Um, maybe if Delphine came along too, but um, Mrs. S did say, um, I have a 14% chance uh, better than you. Of surviving a gunshot wound. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that is also perhaps a sign that she hasn't been killed is she does talk about that. She she admits that she might not have a better chance of surviving this particular wound, but Ferdinand <laughs> did die, deserved it. But yeah, it's not looking good for Mrs. S. And But I really hope that she survives because, and I don't like saying this, Sally, but I feel like I'm going to be mad at the show if she dies. <laughs> oh, I understand. You know, like, what can we say? She's such a great character. And you know, if the only solace is that she died doing what she wanted, she died doing what she loved, killing Ferdinand. No, just kidding. <laughs> keeping <laughs> keeping her family safe. In real life, like nothing is fair. And on TV, I think things are often unfair as well. But more often than not on TV, I feel like some shows are trying to keep a narrative balance or if they allow some characters to have a happy ending or to live, that means other characters must die. This was this was a big a big one for this show and for everyone who watches it. I guess I'm coming to realize like if you had asked me at the beginning of the season which characters is it okay for the show to kill? Like will I think I might be sad but kind of think well okay, Mrs. S definitely would not be on that list and in retrospect I feel like she would be on my needs to survive list. And and I can't really articulate, I guess, a good reason why. I guess it partially has to do with the fact that the series has been so much about fighting for family. And I know that Sarah has this huge extended network of families now, but I really don't want Sarah and Felix to lose their mom. It just makes me really sad. Yeah, same here. I think that both of them, you know, while they're adults, I think they would have a big period of adjustment. and probably, you know, would feel a little rudderless for a while. One of the last shots we saw of Felix and Mrs. S together was when he was introducing Colin to her. And, um, you know, he gives a speech at his art opening about being an orphan, but Mrs. S took him and Sarah in. You know, I don't want them to lose her influence either because she was really just, her house was sort of, I mean, everybody's mom's house is a home. It's a central point, whatever, but it was also like a stability point, I think, for both of them. 
a place of safety and a place for you to go if you need to be protected. What'll they do now? Yeah. Yeah. And in this season, we had Kara, when she was doling out code names, there was that scene where she, I don't know that she intentionally, but Mrs. S, her code name ended up being home. And so if Mrs. S is gone, like they've lost their home. (laughs) It just makes me so sad. Yep. You're being very rational about this, Sally. (laughs) I I wish you'd be a little more emotionally irrational with me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, Stephanie. I think I try to, um, you know, reflect but balance, you know, the emotional state of the person I'm talking to. So (laughs) if you were a little more calm, I would be like, you know what? Orphan Black, you know, this was just a terrible choice. Mrs. S is the best. You guys suck. I'm keeping that part and I'm cutting everything else you said. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Do it. Uh, So can we, can we talk briefly about Ferdinand dying? Because (laughs) let's talk extensively about how much he deserved that. So, okay. When he did what he did to MK, it felt pretty certain that he had to die by the end of the season. How do you feel about the fact that Mrs. S was the one who killed him? I feel great about it because he had to die. I think that he had to, I think that MK had to be avenged. And, you know, I also think that it's appropriate for Mrs. S to have been the one to do it because in kind of that, I guess, ultimate mother role, I mean, not that like, you know, the mom's job is to kill all the bad guys, but metaphorically, you know, yes. But also like she has, done probably this and worse, you know, in her past, maybe even to save or prevent one of the other clones from having to kill Ferdinand. You know, I'm sure that like, you know, Sarah has done stuff in her past, but I've read and, you know, it's, they say on TV, like killing people, you know, will change you. And I think that she probably would have not wanted to put that burden on anyone else, you know, even for a terrible guy that had to be off. I think it was like, Great that it was her. Somebody needed to do it. And who better? What do you think? I like in a sense that it was her because I feel like this whole episode is about her protecting the clones. And this was a definitely a protective act. And so it's kind of nice that it was done by somebody so personal to the clones. And so I do like that. And I don't mind it being S. I think it also could have been Rachel and that could have been good, though obviously she's not really physically up to that, I don't think, at this point. Right. However, I am a little bummed, I think, that he wasn't killed by the board, because that kind of would have felt fitting if their plans had kind of worked out and he was sacrificed to the entity that was trying to control the clones. That, I feel like, could have been pretty satisfying, too. But then I also, you would it wouldn't have that, like, personal, visceral thing that there was with with somebody being connected to the clones killing him. So, but if the board had killed him, then he couldn't have shot Mrs. S. So maybe that's just why I'm I'm feeling a little disappointed that the board wasn't able to kill him. Though, and it also feels like they should have had more security than just two guards. Come on, board. <laughs> <laughs> two guards against I mean, maybe they weren't expecting him to get violent or to try and extort them or blackmail them, although anybody who works with Ferdinand long enough and trusts him, you know, is a bit of a fool. It was interesting when Rachel called Mrs. S and said, Ferdinand made it out of there. And Mrs. S said, I thought he might. She's been up against him before. She knows his skills. You know, he's a 
a wily one, a survivor. And, um, you know, Mrs. S had this feeling that he was going to make it out of there and then come for her. Speaking of perhaps not making the best decisions, I was also surprised that Mrs. S and Sarah just took Kira back to her house. It felt like they should have tried to take her someplace a little less associated with them. I mean, I get it. They eventually sent Kira away. But the fact that they were hanging out so much at S's house in this episode, I just thought, this feels like you're making yourself sitting ducks when <laughs> they're going to figure out Kira is missing. And even though Neolution might not be exact, it is maybe a little crumbly at the moment. There's, They still have people who are willing to do their bidding, I'm sure, like awful anger, as we see in this episode. Mm-hmm. It was a little surprising to me that they were just kind of hanging out at Essa's house. Maybe not the best decision in hindsight. Right. I was surprised about that, too. And then seeing Sarah so tense and looking out the windows and, um, you know, Mrs. S commenting, you know, there's nobody watching. You know, then Art came over and collected Kira and Charlotte. But, you know, I was also, you know, a little bit surprised that they were back at Mrs. S's house. Yeah. <sighs> so I guess I just I just really have my fingers crossed that. S might have survived. I, I know chances are slim, but I really hope she made it. I, I don't want Wences S to be... I want her to be alive at the end of the series. I just really do. I do too. Well, we can hope. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned Rachel, and I'm kind of glad we got some immediate follow-up on her. She is alive, and she seems to be an ally of the clones, but for how long? Right for sure. And, um, you know, also just a tangent, like before talking about her allyship, that scene of that surgeon performing surgery on her eye socket, I guess in that hotel room that Ferdinand arranged for her. Well, Mrs. S actually like called Ferdinand to come take care of Rachel. And, you know, maybe she arranged for the doctor, maybe it was Ferdinand, but, um, Totally random question. What was it that he put into her eye socket? Was it just like packing, gauze, wadding? Like, what was it? That is a good question. I was wondering that, too. I think that's pretty typical when they are operating on people who have lost their eye. I believe they do tend to put something in the socket to kind of hold its shape. But mm-hmm. that did not look what I would think it would look like. I don't know. It, and it felt significant that they gave us an extended shot of whatever they put in her socket. I also had that question. It's like, is there more significance to what he's putting in her eye socket beyond the fact that it's, you know, she no longer has a bionic eye? I, I don't know. But I, th- I think that's a good question. I'm curious about it, too. I think they can do eye transplants. That wasn't what was going on here. But since this is neolution and dyad, I wondered if it was sort of like a massive stem cell infused random tissue that is going to magically form itself into a working eye. I don't think that's what it was, but... <laughs> Hey, that is a reasonable guess. I <laughs> with this show. Hey, why not? If she deserves an eye anyway, so yeah. I mean, she she came through in the last episode. You and Chris talked about that. She helped save Kira, but I wasn't sure if I believed if she was being genuine with Ferdinand about wanting to run away together and and live off their savings somewhere, or if um. You know, she was just sort of testing him, and she'd already decided that she was all in with the plan to bring down the illusion. Yeah, I had questions about that, too, because she has that comment, she says to Ferdinand, about how she returned Sarah's daughter to her. She doesn't owe them anything else. And I, I believed her. Like, that felt like a genuine Rachel sentiment to me. 
in retrospect, even though she does end up helping Mrs. S, I am curious how how assured was her help throughout the episode? Did it change from moment to po- moment depending on how Ferdinand reacted to her? Yeah, that is a good question because when Mrs. S and Delphine showed up in her hotel room and uh, and Rachel was hesitant about something, Mrs. S said, I called him to save your life or something like that. So it didn't sound like Mrs. S was sure that, you know, Rachel was all in either. Because while I do have doubts about whether Rachel can be trusted, it felt like she was expressing that she was pretty done with Neolution at this point. One of the things she says to Ferdinand when he comes back from the board meeting was that she was insulted that he suggested she would take a payoff from the board. So she seems to even be saying like, heck with power and money, that's not my goal anymore. Yeah, you know, I think that in the last episode, she got pretty disillusioned and stripped down of everything that had been important to her. You know, that became more clear to me, actually, after listening to your guys' podcast, breaking down the episode. But, you know, I think it sounded like she wasn't one of the people who actually thought P.T. Westmoreland was 170 years old. But she really did believe in the mission of self-directed evolution and making the species better. But she also had been just so stripped bare by realizing that they were all kind of just humoring her or lying to her about that she could be in control of her own body and be autonomous and not be property of diet anymore. That really seems like it shook her to the core. Yeah. And she made a a pretty big decision to overthrow everything that she had been working so hard for for her entire life. Yeah. Yeah. I clearly when she was placed at the head of Neolution at the end of season four, beginning of season five, I, that felt like a culmination for her. She had a new freedom, sense of freedom because of the probably fake document Westmoreland signed, giving, allowed her to sign, giving her autonomy. Like it felt like she had maybe attained something. And that really was last week episode is her realizing, nope, that all of that was fantasy. So it would make sense to me if here she was just, she was just done with it. I thought it was really powerful that moment where she, you know, she yells at Ferdinand, who was telling her, you know, we could have all this money, we could have this dynasty, this is the goal. And she says, no, we win if Neolution is exposed and Westmoreland is stripped of his myth. Mm-hmm. So it does, it does make me wonder if Ferdinand hadn't been greedy, if he had agreed to her plan that she told him about, that she wanted to release the information and destroy Westmoreland and escape to wherever. It makes me wonder, A, would she have given that information to Mrs. S, or was that part always something she was going to do, but that conversation with Ferdinand was about determining his fate? Like, would she send him to his death at the board meeting, or potential death at the board meeting, I should say, or would he save himself by agreeing to go off somewhere with her? Which is an interesting question, because... Would she have really wanted to go off with him, even if he had made, even if he said, sure, that sounds great. Let's go live the rest of our lives together. I had thought she seemed kind of done with him and over him earlier in the season. Yeah, I don't know. I do think it's worth pointing out here that in this episode, she seems to express regret that she's using Ferdinand as a pawn. She says she's doing this to the wrong man, the only man who ever loved her. But she says Mm -hmm. the only man who ever loved her, not the only man she's ever loved. Or I don't believe she's ever really expressed love for Ferdinand. And maybe that's just not in Rachel, not something she really does. 
but I did think that that was worth pointing out. So whether she would go off with him or not, I th- I kind of think she would have. Because she tells him very plainly, I told you what I needed and you chose not to listen. I feel like she might have gone off with him, but I don't know that Ferdinand would ever have been amenable. Right. He doesn't seem like he'd like a nice, calm, quiet life. But it's funny because that was his plan for them back when MK took all of his money, was building a nest egg and so they could run off somewhere off the grid. But his, I guess when he saw the potential of all the money he could grab, that was more appealing to him than Rachel. Greed is pretty powerful. Well, about his death, though, I will say, you know, it was a very gruesome death scene, getting shot through the neck, you know, his trachea clearly was affected and probably his aorta as well. (laughs) And um, I just loved it. Usually I'm not one for gory, gross death scenes and blood and people coughing, coughing up blood, but I thought this one was really well done. I, it looked real, I guess, but also it was just, you know, the fact that he couldn't even speak at the end, you know, was very satisfying to me. I know, because he's just so oily and sinister. And yeah, he did not deserve any last words. Mrs. S had the last word. Because she deserved the last word or a last word, but we hope it's not her last. Let me reiterate. I hope it's not her last. Well, she had the last word in that exchange anyway. Okay, thank you, Sally. (laughs) And it was chickens. Chickens. I must say, I felt a little faked out by that last conversation between Rachel and Mrs. S. Because the way that Rachel said goodbye to her, it felt very final. And I actually was wondering if we were going to go back to Rachel having done something to herself. In retrospect, she doesn't really strike me as suicidal, but she did just pluck her own eye out. So who knows? But in fact, it was a goodbye to a potential, at least, goodbye to Mrs. S. So I felt a little tricked by that phone call. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you had the same thought. The thought that I, I mean, there was a lot of people in this episode saying goodbye to each other. And, you know, in a way that made it sound final between Rachel and Mrs. S. And then also at Felix's clone party. We'll talk about that later. But, you know, when Rachel said goodbye to Mrs. S., I actually it crossed my mind that maybe Rachel was going to, you know, end her own life. But then I also thought, especially with everything else in the episode that was pointing toward Mrs. S meeting her demise, you know, I thought Rachel was essentially saying to her, I do not think you are going to survive a confrontation with Ferdinand. Mm, Yeah, that's a good point. Because Rachel is smart. She would have, she would have realized that S was going to confront him. Yeah, that's a good point. But you know who else is smart and savvy and street smart and thinks ahead is Mrs. S. And I can't believe, you know, like clearly she had a, you know, an extra gun stuck in the cushion of her chair. But Ferdinand had an extra gun in his pocket. And I just find it a little hard to believe that um, Mrs. S. didn't catch on that maybe he was going to try and shoot her anyway, even though they were ostensibly putting their guns away to talk. Because we saw her loading multiple weapons during that montage. And so I think probably she was trying to get to another gun. Because I I also thought that the one that he actually shoots her with was the one he found on her bookcase. Because he says something like, oh, oh you went, you're going over there to find that gun that I took this clip out of? Because he just shows the clip. Mm-hmm. He doesn't show the gun. So maybe he – maybe it's not. It, maybe it's a different gun. But I, it did feel like she was just trying to get to another gun stationed strategically somewhere in the house. 
But it, yeah, it did seem a bit naive that she wouldn't think he had another one on him. But mm-hmm. maybe she just figured that was her best bet, was trying to get to another gun. Maybe. I mean, you know, like, he was wearing a suit and it had, you know, a few pockets. And I guess if you have a gun in your pants pocket and you're a man that you're um, wearing a, you know, a suit with a jacket, then the jacket can camouflage if there's something in your pants pocket. But, you know, Mrs. S, I'm trying to remember what she was wearing now, but, you know, she could have probably easily tucked away a little a small little thing, you know, in the back in the back waistband of her pants or something. But I guess moving on to the other rather upsetting stuff in this episode was <laughs> what happened with Gracie and Helena. Yes. And uh, and aside about that, actually, before we start talking about their interaction and Gracie's decisions, um, Gracie has reminded me of somebody vaguely. And I just realized last night that even though their characters are really different, she has reminded me of the protagonist from, is it called the fabulous Kimmy Schmidt? Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Right, right. The unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And I think, you know, partially it's uh, maybe there's a resemblance between the actors or they both have slightly reddish hair or something, but also like, you know, lived in sort of a cult confined cult like situation for a few years. When I saw her at the end of the last episode and then at the beginning of this one, I was like, oh, that's who I'm thinking of. Totally different in tone. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, if only... If only she were Kimmy Schmidt and she had brought Titus along. I feel like <laughs> Titus and Helena, that could have made some good stuff. <laughs> oh, oh, it would have been like comedy drama gold. Yeah. But we got Gracie. Oh, Gracie. And I was worried about Gracie. Were you worried about Gracie when she showed up? Oh, for sure. For sure. Like, there's no way that she shows up to just be helpful. But... I was I was proud of her because she decided, or at least temporarily, she decided not to betray Helena, even for Mark. And I was thinking, good for you, Gracie. And so, of course, something terrible had to happen to Gracie. And that made me really sad. Yeah, I agree. So I didn't even also understand why it was the Neolution gun muscle thought it was necessary to shoot Gracie in the head. She changed her mind, sure, but, like, why did I have to kill her? Why did I have to kill her right in front of Helena? It does seem like an unnecessary thing to do. If nothing else, they're trying to get Mark to cooperate with Dr. Cody, and by killing the woman he cares about, it seems like that would be counterproductive. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even Dr. Cody said to Mark when he was first brought to her, um, you know, it makes a difference when you have someone to care about and someone who cares about you. Like he cares about getting a cure because Gracie is concerned about him and he wants to live for her. Well, now, you know, he's not going to have any reason to be loyal to Dr. Cody or anyone else with Neolution. And, and like you were kind of getting at, I, this was the other decision. The deaths in this episode were the decisions for, that the writers did that I don't know that I feel very comfortable about because, and, and I know this is me being protective of Helena, uh, but, you know, what gets get Gracie to change her mind was Helena reminding her that they're family now. It's weird and everything, but technically she's carrying Gracie's siblings. But mm-hmm. so it's it's just horrible to think of the fact that 
Helena so values family and one of her family members just is killed in front of her. You know, she has to watch it happen. She can't do anything. I just, I really don't like how Gracie was used against Helena in this episode. It makes me very upset. Yeah, I'm with you too. And one of the reasons that I like listening to your and Chris's podcast so much is, you know, you help me think a lot about the narrative choices that TV makes and what that causes for the viewer and then, you know, how it kind of influences society. And I think it was a different podcast that Chris was saying that she's tired of seeing women die on her TV set. Yeah. And, uh, you know, ever since hearing that, you know, I've been thinking about how many deaths there are, whether they're supporting the narrative or, or not. And, you know, especially the Gracie death seemed really just gratuitous and unnecessary and designed specifically to do damage to Helena. Yeah, I, I don't like that. It, it it feels definitely like Gracie didn't die because of Gracie. Gracie died because of how her death can affect other characters. And those are always deaths that make me uneasy. Yeah. Because at least Mrs. S here, while she did die, she died because of choices she made rather than her death. Was, like, it's sad, but it's not tragic in the way that Gra- Gracie's death feels. Agreed. But I do want to reinforce what you said before about being proud of Gracie. She did originally come to seek out Helena in order to help her be captured so Mark could be saved. But she did change her mind. She even lied to Mark about not having found Helena because she was reminded that they're family. And we'd seen in in previous seasons, it, it really felt like Gracie and Helena had a connection. It was very rewarding to me that she was reminded of that connection and that made her change her mind about what she was going to do. Yep. I, be- I don't remember if I've called her this on the show before, but in my notes, definitely, I refer to anger as awful anger. She continues to be awful. <laughs> I really don't like that lady. <laughs> uh, she is. She really needs to save her anger for when she's playing on the police department's softball team mm. and uh, rein it in a little bit when she's doing her job. Yeah. Yeah. And this is another one where I know I'm probably hoping against all logic, but I, I, I feel like it's likely Helena's going to be taken to Dr. Cody. I really, really, really don't want that. But I think it, it seems logical just because, you know, they've kind of eliminated the board as a big bad. Ferdinand's been eliminated as a big bad. The people who are left to confront are Dr. Cody and Westmoreland. They're on the island. We have to have some character to lead us back to the island. So it makes sense that Helena's probably going back there. But I'm still, like, hoping against hope that maybe she's able to escape either by herself or maybe Art shows up. I don't know, but I, I don't want her to be captured again. Oh, I know. It was so reminiscent of, uh, was it the season two finale where she was abducted from Felix's apartment? Yeah. Uh, I, I I think she's 100% headed to Dr. Cody because Dr. Cody said when she was doing Rachel's examination you know, she mentioned Helena's babies as well in the same breath as Kira's eggs. Yeah, she was saying, I look forward to working with Helena again, I believe is what she said. Ugh. Yeah. Dr. Cody, you're awful. <laughs> I know. I felt sorry for her for a split second when she was in the mental institution um, on drugs. But, woo. We got over that real fast, huh? <laughs> that's right. That's right. I didn't linger in my sympathy. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, before we move on to talking about the the slightly more lighthearted parts of this episode, I wanted to mention what's going on on one of our other podcasts. Uh, season three of Killjoys is currently airing on Sci-Fi. We have a podcast about Killjoys. Killjoys, by the way, is another really great production by Temple Street that produces Orphan Black. I feel like not enough people are watching and talking about Killjoys. So go watch Killjoys. It's really good. And you can listen to our podcast, which is called The Quad. Right now we're doing weekly episode discussions of season three. You can listen to our episodes and find out how to subscribe to the podcast over at askgenretv.com slash Killjoys. Watch Killjoys and then listen to The Quad while you're in your hot tub filled with green goo enjoying a green martini (laughs) i actually do love a good green apple martini that sounds good (laughs) so i guess let's let's jump over to talk about felix and his art show uh definitely mrs s was trying to use that art opening to distract the clones from what she was doing but i feel like the writers were maybe trying to use it for some like breathing space in the episode and maybe even have us viewers thinking like Delphine expresses like we're so close we're on the precipice we're about to gain our freedom get whatever we want you know they're trying to make us feel as viewers perhaps that the clones are close to having their safety because they definitely felt more at peace and able to socialize and be light in the context of the art opening well what did you think of, of Felix and his art opening in this episode I agree with what you said about um, how it was used narratively to balance the rest of the episode, um, as well as in the plot. You know, Mrs. S putting a big emphasis on it to distract from her and Delphine's mission. I also thought that it was something that, you know, the show, the writers, the creators were using to say and not just repeat, but illustrate a lot of the themes of Orphan Black. And to celebrate each of the individual core members of Clone Club and give them kind of a showcase. It's very humorous how how it all came about since that wasn't the original intention, you know, to have sort of, I think, the, the live women as part of the uh, art opening. But there were so many things that were said during the party and all of that that I think that just seemed to me like it was a bit of a love letter to Orphan Black and a celebration of the themes of the show. I did think it was kind of fun the way that they used the clone swapping here because previously it's always been a clone pretending to be another clone. And we had a little bit of that where Felix initially introduces Allison as Sarah and she puts on her best Sarah accent and (laughs) (laughs) a very short Sarah impression by Allison. But I like that they, they kind of subverted what they usually did and they're just like, nope, we're just going to swap, swap out the clones and have them be themselves. This is an avenue for us to do that where they don't have to pretend to be anything they're not, and they just get to be entirely themselves. Yeah, that was a nice way of turning the orphan black clone trope on its own head. Yeah. <laughs> and I liked that it really felt like, as well as celebrating the clones, I also felt like it was celebrating the clones' relationship to Felix. Like, there was a lot of Mm -hmm. I love yous from the various clones to Felix. And it was also the way that they did the clone swapping, a nice way to have all of them be there to support him in this big thing in his life. Whereas if he had sort of stayed strict on his whole, no, 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 no clone malarkey at my art show, only Sarah could have Mm -hmm. attended. So I thought it was a nice way to have all of the clones be there to support him. 
Yeah, it was it was great. Just how each individual clone came in and was introduced in front of the piece that Felix had painted about them. And then, uh, you know, the brief speech they made about, you know, starting with Allison about, you know, driving the soccer carpool and, you know, doing this and that at Bailey Downs. Like, you know, it was uh, sort of a validation of each clone's individuality, even though they're all genetically identical. And of course, we have that lovely culmination of what his art pieces celebrate, what the show is celebrating, his relationship to his family, where he gives that lovely speech. And he concludes it by saying, we're all mysterious works of chance, of choice, of nature versus nurture. So to my galaxy of women, thank you for the nurture. Just like, oh, <laughs> Felix, you're the best. <laughs> oh, it was, it was great. I mean, and that... I feel like that's one of those moments that the the show's voice, um, in addition to Felix's voice, is making a point. And I think the point that the show was making, one of the central questions about Orphan Black, I've always felt, has been, you know, is it nature versus nurture? How much do our genetics control who we are and what we're interested in, what we're good at? And you know, how much is it that our upbringing controls that? And obviously, like, you know, the answer is it's it's going to be both. But I think this show is drawing a firm line that nurture plays a very big role in how all of us turn out. You know, Felix turned out great. Sarah has turned out great. And then all of her sisters who have also turned out great are also different from each other. You know, some people talk about is genius a thing that you're born with or is it something that you learn through hard work and exposure to the right things? And look at Kasima. She just a brilliant scientist and geneticist. And, you know, I think we've learned that she grew up with academic parents in a really uh, setting that encouraged, you know, her intelligence and then just everything else like Allison and Sarah, they're all sort of reflections of their upbringing. It doesn't mean that that's what they're locked into the rest of for the rest of their life. And, you know, that's what we've seen a little bit of with uh, Allison going away to find herself and trying to change. But especially for all of those of us who, you know, we've grown up with whatever it is and there's whatever in our family trees, um, you know, that may be challenging in our history. Like that's, a, I think that's a hopeful message that Orphan Black is bringing to us, which is you can transcend your genetics biology is not your destiny. It doesn't have to be your destiny. Your body is not a prison. And I was just so touched by how Felix brought his extended biological and other types of family up on stage with him, seeing like Sarah and Adele embrace. And that was just a really touching moment for me. And and I thought he did just a wonderful job of summing up like what the show has been exploring, like you were saying. Yeah, it was also a nice resolution. I think Sarah was very threatened by Adele at first when Felix went and sought her out. And so it was nice to see that also come full circle and, you know, they could be friends and allies now and, and share the love of their brother. Yeah. And I felt like Adele was maybe helping Sarah be a bit of a better sister in this episode. Mm. Because when Adele first comes along, I feel like that that was something of a rift between Sarah and Felix, where Felix was feeling left out, how things were always revolving around Sarah and her stuff. 
and where did he fit in? And Sarah was kind of getting focused on her stuff again in this episode. I mean, legitimately so. There was big things going on. Uh, but I liked that Adele kind of gave Sarah a kick in the pants about it. Like, Felix has been across the world helping you, drawing pictures of you. You know, I think it helped Sarah focus on the fact that she needed to support her brother. Yeah, I agree. That was a great moment. And I liked when Felix kind of shoved her into the art opening because Sarah was like trying to tell him like, Felix, I got this stuff going on. And Felix like, oh, that's terrible. Awful. You're going to hate this. And here's my sister. <laughs> and I love he, he threatens her. He's like, you better play along or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> oh, I know. It was so great. Even though there wasn't a whole lot of Sarah Felix stuff, it, it felt like it really encapsulated their relationship well to me in this episode. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And hey, Colin showed up too. Huh? <gasps> I was so happy. <laughs> I was so happy to see Colin again. I just want Felix to get a nice boyfriend by the end of the series. Please. Well, maybe he will be. It looked like they uh, sort of maybe buried the hatchet. And it sounded like from his conversation with Mrs. S, he might even tell Colin about clones, maybe. Yeah. How about that? How about when Colin said to Sarah, you know, I, I remember doing your <laughs> autopsy. <laughs> and it was Felix was just, yeah, we got over that, didn't we? We did? Yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do like Colin. Do you, are, you, are you a fan of Colin? Oh, I'm totally a fan of Colin, yeah. I think he just seems like a sweetheart. And I, I, I love that Felix introduced him to Mrs. S. I don't think we've seen him do that with anybody. Not that Felix has had a whole lot of serious love interests on the show, but it feels like that's not something he does very often. Oh, yeah, no, definitely not. You know, but he really liked Colin, and then they were just so rudely interrupted. <laughs> oh, and what was the little quip that Felix made? I mean, it was like something sexual about, like, coming early or often or something like that yes that was pretty much it because <laughs> i think oh. i think Collis, colin says i'm i came early and then felix said and often as i recall or something like that yeah right ah. <laughs> <laughs> i uh i don't i i think the first time i heard it i was like wait did i just hear that right <laughs> so cute so I, I have high hopes for Felix and Colin. I want them to be a couple at the end of the series. Even if they don't make it long term, I just want Felix to have a nice boyfriend for a little bit. Well, I mean, it does seem like things may have been heading in that direction. And if Colin can kind of get over being handcuffed um, in such a vulnerable <laughs> private moment, um, <laughs> you know, maybe they've gotten past some of the more difficult stuff in a relationship. Yeah. But I guess, speaking of queer couples, let's talk about Cosima and Delphine. Oh! I had many feelings. They gave me many feelings in this episode. Tell me about all of your feelings. Okay, first of all, Felix, I love you, but you interrupted Delphine when she was asking Cosima, or answering Cosima, what she, she wanted to do with their freedom. What was happening there, S Sally? What was she going to say? Dude, I think she was going to say, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? I know. I feel like he was interrupting a proposal of some kind. So I'm a little mad at Felix. Mm. But despite that, they were super cute. And that the final scene with the two of them, when they uploaded the evidence together, I love that Kasima mm -hmm. took her hand and they clicked the button together. 
And then they're laughing, but then crying, and then hugging, and the thing with the hands. I had so many feelings. It was perfect. It really was perfect. I really love those two actors together. They just, I buy them so hard as a couple. Yes. You know, the one who plays Cosima, I don't think anybody, the one who played Sarah couldn't do that role. The one who plays (laughs) Helena couldn't do it believably. It's got to be the actress who plays Cosima. I know, it's only her. (laughs) Yeah, you know, so... My wife, Laura, and I have had some conversations about Orphan Black and, um, you know, especially through some of the harder stuff in the seasons when, you know, Delphine decided, all right, I will love you and all your sisters equally. And that means I'm going to do this thing. And that means that we have to break up. It means all this stuff. And I'm going to be a really kind of hard edged person and, you know, not able to be your girlfriend right now. Like, I was swept up in that at the time being like, but why can't you have your cake and eat it too, Delphine? You know, why not? You know, I think what I've come to realize through watching Delphine's actions as she has done this, she loves Cosima a lot. Yeah. She totally changed her whole life and her whole, you know, whatever her career was before she met Cosima, but she went to some hard, dark places specifically and the whole time it was never about power and it was never about anything but her promise to keep Cosima and all of her sisters safe and make them safe permanently and then you can see that at the art party the art opening all on her face when she's sort of beholding the painting of Cosima you just see on Evelyn Brochu's face this just this expression of just like utter love and how overwhelmed and swept away and touched she is that Felix has captured the essence of Cosima on this canvas. And, you know, she puts her a sticker on it to buy it. I had as a viewer, a little trouble kind of going along with that narrative when all we saw was broken hearted Cosima, but I just, it's come around. I feel like I'm saying that a lot, like things have come full circle. It feels like for, you know, that arc of Delphine and culminating in them pressing the button together. Like, wow. Well, and I feel like as much as Mrs. S has been revealed this season to be doing this stuff, I think really for Sarah, you know, this is really what Delphine has kind of been doing all along. And, and Chris and I, I don't, I can't speak for you. We've, we sometimes have issues with her methods and kind of leaving Cosima and Sarah out of decision making and things like that. But I feel like what Cosima was seeing here was this was a huge gift that Mrs. S and Delphine had done for them. Mm-hmm. They were really the ones who were working to protect the people they love, to help the people that they love. Absolutely. And it brings up an interesting question about does the ends justify the means? And I think the means for Mrs. S and Delphine have obviously not always been, you know, 100% pure or um, not in gray areas. You know, they've gone to places that probably the clones wouldn't have done. They've made decisions that involve people. You know, I feel like literature has explored the theme of the, does the ends justify the means and the outcome always seems to be no. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, you know, it makes me wonder if there's going to be another shoe that will drop in the show, some consequences of what Mrs. S and Delphine have done. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, they didn't kill any innocents as far as we know. They just colluded with bad people. But that is something that I wonder about. How will they have been changed or possibly, you know, damaged by any of the more questionably moral, morally questionable decisions they made? 
I did want to mention just briefly the an exchange that they have at the at the art opening. And because I'm me, I have like two distinct feelings about it. Because <laughs> you, you mentioned Delphine buys the painting of Cosima. And I didn't catch this the first time. I misheard it the first time because I thought what Cosima says to Delphine after she does that, I thought she said, you owe me. And I thought what she was meaning was that they got interrupted by Felix and she owed her an answer to her question. But apparently that's not what she says. She says, you own me, meaning she, you know, Delphine bought the painting of her and she's making a joke like, oh, you own me. And mm -hmm. Delphine responds to her, yeah, you're mine. Okay, on the one <laughs> hand, it is sweet. But on the other hand, I always get a little uneasy when romantic couples, because it seems to happen a lot in TV shows, where romantic couples use this sort of owning language makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Just yeah. because of the, the history of, of marriage and women's place in marriage, even though, granted, I know this is two women, uh, but just that sort of ownership language makes me feel uncomfortable. But if you think of it in the larger context of their relationship, you know, one of the pivotal moments in their relationship was them decoding that synthetic code in Cosima's genome and realizing that it was a patent and Cosima saying that, you know, she's owned by the clone experiment. So this moment of Cosima joking and saying to Delphine, you own me and being kind of, like happy about it. Mm -hmm. It is an interesting counterpoint in that regard. Cosima having the ability to say, oh, yeah, you're the one. You got it. Instead of having it defined by what's being put in her DNA. Yeah, that is a that is a really interesting observation. I don't think I caught it, you know, the first time either. I think I was just busy being overwhelmed by, you know, what I had just seen on Delphine's face. Uh, so it wasn't until I read um, your notes on this that I realized that's what she said. And it, that was the context. And, you know, just hearing you talk now that it was the counterpoint to that scene where they discover the barcode, I think about like, you know, like ownership language and, you know, people like what they're talking about in relationships often, like, doesn't mean their bodies or their autonomy. It's more about, you know, you own my heart. You know, I've always thought a better way of phrasing that instead of like some, one person saying to another, you're mine, you know, it's the person who's making this choice, you know, deciding to say, I'm yours, you have my heart. Not that I'm rewriting the scene. I thought it was funny the way it was. And, you know, since they were talking about a painting, but then the layer underneath was about, you know, their relationship and their love for each other. But I think that for Cosima, anyway, like the fact that, you know, she gets to choose and then they have that conversation later about like or before, I mean, like, you know, what will um, what will we do when we you know don't have to worry about this anymore? Like, what a thought, right? Yeah. What will they do? <laughs> I don't know, Sally. I don't know. <laughs> but, and, and, but I was happy that it was Delphine who was the one who said that because I feel like they're the ones that I'm most sort of interested to see how they're going to be immediately affected by not being under the weight of this experiment. And it's not because maybe it's because I, you know, my love for Cosima or what have you, but it does feel like theirs has been the relationship the most affected by it. And so this idea that they could be out from under the weight of dyad and, and neolution and all that nonsense and how would it affect them so i it made me happy that delphine was the character who got to voice that like we're on the precipice what could we do with our freedom right their whole relationship actually even started because delphine was cosima's monitor yeah. so 
it began on shaky ground, but then it became like the, one of the most true things on this show, at least for me. Yeah, I agree. And then I wonder about this too, though. What do you do with revolutionaries when the revolution is over? Mm. And, and, and that question comes up, um, you know, what do you do with people who have been trained to lead an insurrection um, after that's done and you're trying to have stability and a stable government, people who may have been changed by the things that they've had to do. And, you know, I'm trying to envision like what the rest of Delphine and Cassina's lives would be like. They're both scientists and they love the science. Would they want to continue with scientific research in some form in order to help people? Or, you know, do they want to make a total life change and never look at a test tube full of DNA again? (laughs) Well, it does sound like Kasima and Scott and probably Delphine, too, they will have an immediate project of getting the rest of the Lita's inoculated for the Lita disease or treated for the for the, the disease, the prion disease. Mm-hmm. We had Kasima mentioning that in this episode that, you know, they had a certain amount already ready and they could develop some more, hopefully. And yeah. so I am curious to see the follow up on that, like, because Kasima makes a, a pointed remark to Scott, like, yep. It's what we got to do next. We got to figure out where all the other leaders are. So I, I kind of want a little bit of follow up in that regard. Maybe we won't get mm-hmm. it. I don't know that it's strictly necessary, but I wouldn't mind seeing them investigating and finding where all the other Lita clones are. Yeah. And, you know, there could be like way more than we've even seen, like pockets everywhere. Yeah. So moving into, I guess, the the last important member of Clone Club who didn't have a whole lot going on this week. But Allison did show up to the art opening, and we saw her struggling a little bit with trying to keep her new leaf turned over with the comment she was making about <laughs> Donnie's clothing. <laughs> but she didn't tell him to go change, so maybe maybe this is a, a long-term change she can make. Well, that's right. I mean, you make long-term change by practicing, and you can't practice if you never mess up. Exactly. Exactly. Though it did feel a little pointed to me. We were talking earlier about how you know, each of the clones got to be highlighted. It felt like because Allison is kind of in a transition, she didn't get to sort of display her unique qualities quite as much as Sarah and Kasima did. But it did feel appropriate because she's kind of figuring out who she is and wh- what she wants to do next. Yeah. You know, I, I liked the visual um, juxtaposition of the painting of her that Felix did where, you know, she's got her cut straight across her forehead bangs and her really serious I'm an in-charge mom look. Um, And then, you know, there was she with her new look and her purple hair and her sort of asymmetric haircut. And, uh, you know, the things that she said were very much about her, you know, suburban life to date in Bailey Downs. You know, and I think that part of that was probably just so she could reflect the vision of her that Felix had painted and illustrate that for the people at the art opening. You know, it was nice that it was delivered with, you know, her in the middle of sort of changing into who she wants to be, whoever that is. I did enjoy John, Donnie's question to Allison if he should untuck his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> is that cooler? I, I think he made the right decision. He should have remained tucked. But I do kind of agree with Allison that was perhaps not the best outfit for an art gallery opening. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it, though. Felix just sort of sashaying by and saying, no, no, I need you, like, you know, for my straight man bartender or whatever it Mm -hmm. was he said. Yeah. You know, just the right amount of, like, 
levity or, you know, like social grease between, you know, two potentially frictioning cogs in the machine at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was very Donnie. Like, Donnie was himself. I want Donnie to be Donnie. It's not that I want Donnie to change, but it, I was looking at him and thinking throughout the later parts of the episode, yeah, he kind of sticks out in that plaid shirt of his. <laughs> it does make you wonder, though, like, if Allison is in the process of changing and does make some permanent changes, and one of them is that she tries really hard not to tell Donnie what to do, you know, who will Donnie be? It seems it's a good like- question. You know, he gravitated to Allison for a reason. And if he doesn't have that kind of guiding force in his life, I think they have a deeper foundation, love and trust that they've developed between them that we've seen in the last few seasons. So I don't think that um it's going to mean that he doesn't want to be in their marriage anymore. But it does make me wonder, like, who will he become without her steering his ship? Yeah, because by extension... It seemed like it was Allison's mother's expectations that often also shaped who Donnie was and what Donnie did. And it feels like Allison's really cut herself off from her mother's expectations, too. So he does have a bit of a bit more play, I feel like, if Allison is willing to release her grip on him a bit and let him be more who he determines himself to be. Yep. I'm excited for Allison, though. I mean, I think that uh, I imagine that once it's safe, she probably wants her kids to come back and live with her. And I feel like she might get to uh, enjoy parenthood in a new way as well. Um, You know, I do identify with Allison in this show, you know, a bit just sort of by circumstance. Um, And I also understand, I think, kind of how being a mom, like at this point in time, um, you know, in the year that we live in with the expectations that are put upon parents. Um, I live in a really kind of chill, laid back suburb. It's not a suburb or a development at all, like Bailey Downs. But, you know, I think I feel kind of the weight of society's expectations for how I'm meant to raise my children. And I, I feel like Allison probably had her children super duper scheduled and then, you know, very busy to kind of enrich their lives and stuff. And, you know, the thing that we've never seen before, you know, for screen time, but I'm just sort of extrapolating about uh, her relationship with them is um, connecting with them, you know, talking to them and understanding what sort of people they are. And I feel like now, especially if she continues on this trajectory, you know, she may be getting to know her children in a new way. That's a good point, because Allison's children have always been used very differently in a narrative perspective than Kira has. Like, Kira has very strong connections and relationships and scenes with particularly Sarah, but, you know, Mrs. S and Felix as well. But that's not really ever been how they've used Allison's children. So, yeah, it would be interesting to see how, if how Allison relates to her children has changed with her changing her understanding of who she is. Yep. And I, I don't think we're going to get to see that, you know, in the last, is it two more episodes or three? Two more. Just two. Oh, my gosh. I knew. But maybe in the comic books, maybe if they keep writing comic books for a little bit, perhaps they can explore that in there. I don't think we'll we'll get to see that, um, you know, or if we do, it'll just be sort of like one little like maybe montage wrap up scene. But I do like to imagine it because I want good things for Allison. Yeah. I feel like she's come a long way. She's always had her heart in the right place. But I think that she's really come a long way from who she used to be. I have to say, I am 
I had questions about what Art was up to at Felix's opening. He seemed really twitchy, and I wasn't <laughs> sure we ever got a f- full understanding of why he was as on guard as he was. Yeah, I am not sure either. I mean, he wanted to know when Sarah showed up. So, you know, I guess I wonder if maybe he was uh, like if part of his assignment or job from Mrs. S was to make sure Sarah didn't, you know, skip the art opening and, you know, get in the way or maybe be in the house when Ferdinand came by, if, if that's what she thought was maybe going on. Yeah, I do wonder if he was working with or not working with, but he had instructions from Mrs. S about Sarah. Because when Sarah finally does show up, it doesn't seem like he talks to her about anything in in particular. But he did mm-hmm. ask Donnie, like, tell me when Sarah gets here. And he right. says he's kind of keeping an eye on the opening because anger's gone AWOL and he seems worried about her. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't know. I just I feel like I'm not entirely sure what Art was up to and if we got an answer about it. And if maybe there could be an answer to come. There might not. But he seemed suspicious to me. <laughs> Yeah, he was he was twitchy for sure. I mean, maybe maybe it's a setup for whatever is going to happen in the next episode. Yeah. But I did thought I thought it was a nice moment when he and Sarah stood in front of the painting of Beth. Yeah, me too. If we'd seen that painting of Beth before, I've I'd forgotten, but I I really liked the way that Beth's portrait turned out. Oh, yeah. The other thing that I I figured was worth mentioning was that Van Leer sort of throws a threat over his shoulder as Ferdinand leaves the boardroom, saying that he's not done with any of you, presumably Ferdinand, though he's dead, so boards are done with him, whether they want to be or not. And then (laughs) I I presume he also meant like Rachel and the rest of Clone Club. So like I said before, I feel like Westmoreland and Cody are clear big bads that are left to be dealt with before the series ends. But I'm curious if the board will stay in the mix, too, or if they are kind of defeated at this point. I'm not sure. Well, it looks like Neolution as an organization is about to be exposed because Cassina uh, and Delphine have sent that information to all the, you know, what, what do they call them? The ethics boards of the countries where all the cloning and DNA stuff was happening. Right. The board members that were absent, did you catch that uh, they had committed suicide? Yeah. So the walls are coming down around them, and I think that the death blow is the publicity. Yeah, I think that uh, the confrontation of P.T. Westmoreland and then as well as Dr. Cody are the last two kind of demons or dragons to slay there. Though I must say I am curious to see how, if there is follow-up on them submitting all that information to the different regulatory boards and ethics committees, because this is a bit reminiscent of what we saw in the Helsinki comic book arc, because the clones had planned to like go to the press and reveal that they were clones to try to out the clone experiment. But in that particular book, what happened was 9-11, which overshadowed what they were trying to reveal. Like no reporters showed up for the press conference they tried to organize because 9-11. And so, you know, they're trying to use the media. didn't quite work for them. Here we have Clone Club trying to use both the media, because Delphine mentioned they sent the information to some reporter friends of Siobhan's, but they're also contacting the regulatory agencies. So I kind of hope that we maybe get some follow-up on that so that we know there was some success there and it didn't just get ignored because of something else bigger happening or what have you. Yeah, I mean... For sure. It sounds like they were trying to cover more bases this time. Because I worry 
because Neolution seems to have a pretty big reach and a huge slush fund, you know, have they bribed everybody on these boards so that would they look the other way? I don't know. I, I shouldn't worry myself, but I did have that thought. I'm like, what if this doesn't work? Oh, no. <laughs> well, the enemy of secrecy and government corruption and everything is a free press. If anyone's got honest reporter friends who are going to make sure the story gets out, it'll be Mrs. S for sure. She probably knows all the people that work at the alternative weeklies and the revolutionary newspapers who will put this out. And then at first, like the mainstream media will ignore it, but then they'll start picking up on it as a story. I love your headcanon that you come up with, Sally. You're really good at it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little too much time thinking about all the backstory of all these people, but... (laughs) Probably unsurprisingly, we received quite a bit of feedback about Mrs. S. Colleen just sent us a very simple email saying the reason she was crying very, very late in the in the early morning hours was because of Mrs. S. uttering the word chickens. But let's start first with a voice memo that Chris sent in with her thoughts about the episode. Hey, this is Chris. Apparently, I picked the worst possible week to be unavailable to record, because what the heck was that, right? I mean, I loved Felix's art show so, so much. I thought everything about that was so great. And his speech at the end, I mean, I I love it. I love all that stuff. But the death of Mrs. S, if that's what it was, because I'm not completely sure, because it was at the very end of the episode, I feel like it probably is, unfortunately, for for dramatic weight purposes, and I get it. I get it. But at the same time, I'm so mad about it. <sighs> but given the themes of the show, I can understand them going either way with it. Because if it's a matter of her sacrificing herself for her children, that makes sense to me. That fits in with the themes of the show. I know a ton of moms who would totally do that. It fits in. I get that. But also they've explored this topic of healing and long life and all those sort of things. So, I mean, it's possible that they'll save her next episode, but I'm not holding my breath. I'm not holding my breath. (sighs) And then there's Gracie. They brought her back only to maybe kill her. I don't know about that one either. I have have strong mixed feelings about this episode, as is often the case. And uh, hopefully I will talk about them with Stephanie and all of you next week. I know, buddy. I know. I feel ya. I wish you were here, too. Not that Sally's not great, but I wish you were here to talk about this episode with me, because I, too, have very conflicted, strong feelings. And thank you for reminding me about Gracie. It is true. We do not see a body. We do not see what happens to her. It's off-screened. However, if they're going to undo any deaths next episode. I, I I feel it's unlikely they would take back both of them, kind of do a, hey, faked you out on both of them. And I would rather that they pull a, hey, faked you out on Mrs. S over Gracie. Sorry, Gracie, but Mrs. S is a much more central, important character on the show. I would much rather have her death be a, a not set in stone one rather than Gracie's death. So, but we shall see. We'll see what is revealed next week. And I'm, I'm, I'm still just hoping, hoping, hoping that Mrs. S isn't actually dead. But I know my, I shouldn't get my hopes up too much. 
Moving on, we received an email from Jamie saying that this episode of Orphan Black affected her more than any others. She says, Mrs. S has been a favorite of mine, as well as many others out there, from the beginning. I've always overlooked all her secrets, all her unlawful actions, and all her fights with Sarah, because I just felt so deeply that I knew we could trust her. But this was such a big secret that I wish the other characters would not have shrugged it off as they always seem to do. I know Mrs. S was afraid to tell Sarah that she was working with Ferdinand because of what Sarah's reaction would be. But why this time? Mrs. S had never backed down from owning up to what she had done before, despite Sarah's feelings, like when she gave up Helena at the end of Season 2 and the beginning of Season 3. Also, why oh why did Mrs. S think it was a good idea not to tell any of the other characters? Doesn't she usually share her shifty plans with at least one other character? Where was Benjamin, her right-hand man, through all of this? Where was her network? Why did the writers choose to wait this long in the series to kill off such a valuable character to both the main characters and the viewers? How did this further the plot of the show other than giving Ferdinand the gruesome ending he deserved? Something here is not adding up to me, and I need answers. Well, I don't have any answers for you personally, Jamie. I can just give you my opinion. I I do think that perhaps the reason Mrs. S kept it so secretive was the fact that, like Sally and I were talking about, it feels like this was something that S really tried to shoulder for Sarah this season. She, at least to me, it feels like she wanted to take over for Sarah so that Sarah didn't have to be the one who everything was riding on, as she has been for so much of the series. It feels to me, at least, that S really wanted to take on solving this clone problem for Sarah and so I think that might be why she was even more secretive than usual. As to why she didn't have backup or anything like that, I agree that feels out of character for her. Except again, I do think we get the sense that she was trying to ensure everybody else's happiness and she was willing to make this sacrifice to keep her children safe. I'm still hoping she will reve- be revealed to have backup. They'll come and they'll save her. Sarah will maybe save her, because what what good is that clone connection if we can't save the people we love? Is what I am asking. And then from Kathy, Kathy begins, Can we all give a collective wail of Mrs. S? I hope that was an okay wail for you, Kathy. This was a real getting the band back together episode. Yes, finally, pretty much everyone we love was back. Much too long without Felix. Delightful to see Delphine not rushing off to catch a plane somewhere. Colin. Adele was fun to see. The guy we love to hate, Ferdinand. I pretty much just hate him now, personally. But to each their own. Helena, Gracie, Mark, Charlotte. Only Crystal was missing of my favorites. The art show gave the episode a different feel after too long on that dreary island, and for me, Cosima's dance was a definite highlight. Also, so nice to see Cosima and Delphine just hanging out a bit, although a little more mystery from Delphine sneaking off with Mrs. S. She will have to find a nice wall to hang her Cosima portrait. So Mrs. S and Ferdinand. With a few episodes left, some major characters were going to have to go. In my opinion, I think Delphine and Cosima are safe, as I don't think they want to follow the dead lesbian trope. I agree. Art, Felix, Donnie, however, this one will be even more devastating than those characters for Sarah and the sisters. Mrs. S really has been the mother to them all, and a real driving force in keeping things organized over the years. Having masterminded the plot to get to the truth about Neolution, having made alliances with Rachel, admitting to being the one to call Ferdinand to save her, telling Delphine what to do, she really has been the brains of the family. Even with her dying breath, she took out the evil Ferdinand, who almost added to his Lita killing this episode. 
She had a lovely thank you in Felix's speech and will be greatly missed. Thank you for your email, Kathy. Like Chris was saying, I am fully willing to admit that I knew that there would be some character deaths coming to the end of the series. I just, I just really didn't want it to be us. Why? Why? And then finally, from Ralph, he had a question. Do we know who inspired Mrs. S. and Sarah to visit Dr. Cody in the institution? P.T. was clearly the big winner from that event, but I don't think that Ferdinand is on P.T.'s team. Was Rachel a link in that information chain? Rachel has become one legitimately confused clone in season five. There are many articles waiting to be written there. Well, I think your question, Ralph, is maybe why Mrs. S. decided to visit Dr. Cody, because I think... You seem to get that it was Ferdinand was the person who told her about Dr. Cody. So I think this is a good question, and this is one I've been kind of wondering about since this episode aired as well, because I've been trying to figure out what was the logic behind the series of events this season. And the only thing I can really think is I feel like Mrs. S. thought that Cody would be an important, or at least could be an important person to filling in some background information to the clone experiment project. Because that's clearly been one of her two main goals this season. She's wanted to attack the current iteration of Neolution and cripple it, which we see her do in this episode with all that information she collected with Delphine and Adele and Felix and finally from Rachel. So that's done. And then the other thing she wanted to do was to figure out the beginnings of Neolution so that she could probably, it was thinking they could expose Miss Moreland and use that perhaps against people in his inner circle, like they try to do with Rachel, who ultimately sends it to the board. So that's that's my guess, is that it was Mrs. S who decided to go see Cody, thinking she could be good information to reveal the beginnings of Neolution, perhaps be a way to unveil P.T. Westmoreland as a fraud or what have you. I can't remember if she knew that much at that point in the season, but I do think she thought she could be a good informant as to the beginnings of all of this. However, at this point, it feels like that was really a bad call on Mrs. S's part. Sorry, Mrs. S, because she just escaped the mental institution where she had been being held and made it back to Neolution Island and is now, you know, helped kill Susan Duncan and bad stuff has happened because Dr. Cody got free. Now potentially Gracie's dead because of Dr. Cody. So in hindsight, it was perhaps not the best call on S's part, but I do believe that was what inspired her to go, was just trying to get information about the beginnings of Neolution. Well, before I conclude the episode, was there anything else you wanted to mention? Just two episodes. Just like, ah, what? Mm, mm. Just, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Okay. Did you want to mention your your t-shirts? Because there are people listening to this podcast who could be interested. Oh, yeah. Um, that'd be great. So, uh, hello, everybody. So, <laughs> I'm Sally, and my friend Rebecca and I have a t-shirt company. We make shirts by fangirls, for fangirls, and for anyone who wants to wear them, even if you don't identify as a fangirl. So, it's called Fangirl Shirts. We're on the web at fangirlshirts.com. You know, we make shirts about all the shows that we love and movies as well. So, we like strong, empowered female characters, three-dimensional LGBT relationships, 
we make shirts that uh, we want to wear that are about the shows that we love. We have one about Orphan Black. It was one of our very first designs when we started the company a couple of years ago. And uh, it's also one of our most, I think, basic and subtle designs. Go to our website and check it out. Yeah, like we'll give you the shirt off our backs. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. All the shirts I've ever bought from them, they smell like Sally. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. But they also have shirts, uh, designs that are based off of like Supergirl, the series, and you have Windowner Earp. And I'm trying to think some of the movies. You have Star Wars. Star Wars and um, Wonder Woman. If anyone's seen that, I don't know. It's kind of a cult hit, I've heard. It's true. I do really like your Wonder Woman one. It's the Themyscira equestrian team. That's a good one. (laughs) Well, thank you. That shirt design actually came out of the brain of Laura Heaven, who I am her spouse. So we were talking about the movie and cool shirts. And she was like, oh, you should do this. And I was like, great. Your spouse is very smart. She's a smart one. She's a keeper. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being a last minute fill in for for Chris. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. So I did. I was planning to do it by myself if I had to, but I just figured it wouldn't be all that interesting. I guess I could pretend to be Chris. This is when I really wish we did get Tatiana Maslany on all our episodes. She could have been Chris. (laughs) (laughs) She would have been a very convincing Chris. She could have said, deserve it. (laughs) But thank you so much for for filling in and being a guest co-host. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for asking me, Stephanie. I mean, I love it. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. You can send them to us in a variety of ways. You can send us an email, feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. You can also send us a voice message. We love getting those. Do that in a couple of ways. Record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us. Or you can call our listener voicemail line at 972 514-7223. We are on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. Tatiana's Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. You can find our other podcasts about Killjoys and Winona Earp and Lost Girl and some other shows over at AskGenreTV.com. And in this episode, the blood that Ferdinand choked on as he died, because he deserved it, was played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening.